Hello, it's Catherine Carr here, producer of the podcast. In a moment, it will just be David, with the third in his series of talks about the future of democracy. They follow on from How Democracy Ends and Democracy for Young People, which we published over the last year. This one looks at how an idea taken from cosmology might help us understand where we are in the story of democracy. It all depends on where we think the story starts. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, and the LRB has a new podcast of its own called The State Of, and it's hosted by LRB editors Joanna Biggs and Tom Crew. It aims to take the temperature of contemporary culture. The second episode is now available, in which Joe and Tom discuss the state of the nation with LRB writers Lorna Finlayson and William Davis. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts or on the LRB website at lrb.co.uk forward slash state of. In 1969, or this is how the story goes, a young American physicist called Richard Gott took a trip to Europe and he came to England and while he was here he visited Stonehenge and then he went to Germany and in Berlin he went to look at the Berlin Wall. And then on his way home, he found himself thinking about these two imposing, permanent-seeming monuments. I wonder if I will outlive either of them. And he decided that it was really unlikely that he would outlive Stonehenge, because Stonehenge had been around for 4,000 years, I think. And that would mean if it was down while he was still standing, there would be something weird about him visiting it, because like he goes to see it, and then after 4,000 years it comes down. It would imply there was something special about him or his visit. And he thought, I'm just a tourist and people have been going to look at this thing for thousands of years. Why would it fall down now? But he thought the Berlin Wall's only been around, this is in 1969, for eight years. It looks just as imposing, in some ways even more imposing. It's got a nuclear-armed superpower propping it up. But if it was to come down in 10 years or 20 years or 30 years, there would be nothing special about me having seen it then because I'd be looking at it in the middle of its life. And so he thought, I might outlive the Berlin Wall, but I'm definitely not going to outlive Stonehenge. And then he parked that thought. And then 20 years later, in 1989, and it's hard to remember just how surprising this was, the Berlin Wall came down and Richard Gott was still very much alive. He's still alive today. So I think he was in his 40s then. So he was right. And It now seems obvious, but at the time, and I remember this, I grew up with the Berlin Wall, it felt like it was never coming down. It seemed impossible to imagine a world without the Berlin Wall in it. But his conclusion was, if you just do the probabilities, things that haven't been around for long, when you encounter them, are not likely to be at the start of their lives. And the Berlin Wall fitted that pattern. So he then thought, is there some scientific principle at work here that we could apply? And so he decided to run an experiment. And I think he did this in 1993. So the experiment was to take a random day on Broadway and look at all the shows that are running, all the musicals, all the plays, and see if you can guess how long they're likely to run from how long they have run. So if you take a random day on Broadway, or if you did it in the West End in London, there are always a few shows that have been on forever. I don't know what it was in 1993, but kind of Cats or maybe Miss Saigon, or now it would be Les Miserables or something like that. 
And then the vast majority of shows haven't been running for very long, maybe a few weeks. The test that he wanted to apply was, it's unlikely if you take a random day that something that's only been around for a few weeks has got years to run, because that would mean you somehow met it at the start of its life. Or something that's been around for a few years has only got a few weeks to run, because that would mean you'd met it at the end of its life, like Stonehenge, just before it falls down. Things that have been running for years are likely to run for years, and things that have been running for weeks are likely to run for weeks or maybe months. And I know this sounds obvious, but it also turned out to be unerringly accurate. And it's a very useful way of predicting the life expectancy of things about which all you know is how long they've been around, but they don't have a natural life expectancy. Broadway shows don't get born, get educated, mature, get old and die. It's kind of random. So it sounds obvious, and yet it has surprising applications. So I'm going to tell you how this idea is meant to work. And then there's a famous application to something that's slightly more important than the question of how long Les Miserables is going to run. And then I think there's also a really interesting political application, and that's the one I want to get onto, which says something about where we are now. So the name for this principle is the Copernican Principle. That's what it's come to be known as. And it takes its name from the famous old astronomer Copernicus, who was the person who first explained that we are not the centre of the universe. We're not even the centre of the solar system. We're just a rock floating around our sun, which is also floating around in space. The reason it's called the Copernican Principle is that it's trying to push back against the basic natural human instinct to think that we're special. People think that they're special. People think that because it's happening to them, it must be special. People think that the place we are in time is special because we're alive now. The Copernican principle says, if you stop and think about it, it's really, really unlikely that we would be the centre of the universe. Why would we be the centre of the universe just because it's us? Imagine the odds against that, that we're on this rock and this rock happens to be the centre of the universe. You could construct a religion that tells you that that's how it has to be. But if you just look at it in terms of probability, it's much, much more likely we're at some random place in the universe, which we are. To be at the centre of the universe would make us really special, and we're not. So what Richard Gott did was apply that sort of spatial principle to time. So the way it works for time is... The special moments in time are the beginning and the end of things, or the exact middle of things. So it's also important to say here that this principle doesn't say when you meet a show that's been running for three weeks, it means it's going to run for three weeks. It doesn't mean that you go and visit the Berlin Wall and it's been up for eight years and it'll come down in eight years, because that would also make you special. It would mean you'd seen it on the middle day of its life. But the middle day of its life, like the centre of the universe, is not where you're likely to end up just somewhere in the random middle, somewhere that's not the beginning and not the end, because the beginning and the end are unlikely special events. So if you think that unless you are a lucky or unusual person, most things that you encounter that have an unknown lifespan are likely to be somewhere in the random middle of their lives, what could you apply that principle to? So I'm just going to apply it to two things. One, which is, this is well known, and this is why the principle has become famous, and I think it's really interesting and quite scary. And that's the question of how long has the human race got left? And then the other one, which is something that I've been interested in for a while, and I've not seen it applied to this, so we'll have to see if this works. 
how long has democracy got left, if you apply the Copernican principle. I first came across this idea in a book by Martin Rees, like Copernicus, another astronomer, also a previous guest on Talking Politics. So not the book that he was talking to us about recently, but the book he wrote at the turn of the 21st century, which was called Our Final Century? Question mark, in which he said he thought there was about a 50-50 chance that the human race, the human species, would not make it out of this century. And one of the arguments that he uses in that is a variant on the Copernican principle. But the point is, if you apply the thought that we're unlikely to be the end to the question of the history of the human race, there are two ways you can tell that story. So the Copernican principle pushes back against the human instinct, which has been true of human beings, I think, throughout history, to believe that the world's in such a mess, this must be the end of times. So I think human beings have repeatedly thought, we're probably the last humans because everything is so completely screwed up. So you would think that at the end of the Roman Empire, or you would think that during the bubonic plague, or you might well think that during the, the great wars of the 20th century. Like, you know, This must be the end. But for any generation of humans, it's really unlikely that you're the end, because you're not special. So we think Donald Trump is president, and the Kardashians are the most famous family on the planet, so this is the end of times. But that would make us somehow, unlike all the other human beings who've ever lived before, it's, it's not probably it could be so this doesn't prove anything but probabilistically we're really unlikely to be the last humans ever so what if you think we're in the middle of the human story somewhere in the middle not the direct middle not the center we might be much nearer the beginning we might be much nearer the end but we're not at the end so there are two ways you could frame that there's the optimistic way and the pessimistic way so the optimistic way says well how long has homo sapiens been around I think it's at least 200,000 years, it's probably more, and it's certainly at least 100,000 years since Homo sapiens has started to spread around the planet. So if you took even the really conservative estimate, and say this is at least a 100,000 year story, and actually significantly more, it's really, really, really unlikely it's going to end in the next century or two, or even in the next thousand years or two. It could, but it's more likely to have thousands, tens of thousands of years to run, than tens or hundreds of years to run. It's like Stonehenge. It would be weird if we visited this existence and then it falls over. That's the optimistic version. Unfortunately, there's a more persuasive version, which is the Martin Rees pessimistic version, which says, don't do it just in terms of raw time because that's actually not the human story. The human story is the story of population. So instead of that, think about the idea that there will eventually be a last human. And, and maybe that will be because Homo sapiens will morph into some new species, sort of half human, half machine, whatever. But there, will, there has to be a final Homo sapiens. So there will be a finite total of human beings who have ever lived. At the moment, there have been, these are very rough numbers, there have been roughly, I think slightly more than 100 billion humans ever. So if we're in the middle of a story where currently we're at 100 billion it wouldn't be outlandish to think that the story might end at 150 billion, might end at 400 billion. It's probably not going to end at 100 billion and one, as it were. But, you know, 150 billion or 200 billion would put us in the middle of that story. The trouble is, almost all the human beings who have ever lived have been born in the last 200 years. So for the vast 
proportion of that 100,000-year-plus story, there were very, very, very few of us. And it's only since the beginning of the 19th century when we escaped from what's called the Malthusian trap, the idea that as human beings um, have more and more children, they run out of food to feed those children. There's this horrific natural process by which famine essentially keeps the numbers down. And it turned out just at the point that Malthus came up with that idea, it was shown not to be true gradually that we could feed more and more people. And human population has exploded so that now the population of the earth is I think around 7.7 billion which means more than 7% of all the human beings who ever lived are alive now so to get to 150 billion say isn't going to take long population is still growing it's going to probably peak around 9 or 10 billion and then it view is it will start to slow down and maybe shrink but even at 9 or 10 billion it does not take you many generations to get to 150 billion And that is well within the bounds of probability. And actually, it's more unlikely, if you think of it in population terms, the idea that we got tens of thousands or thousands of years left would make us really early in the story. And we're probably not. So that's cheery. How does it work when applied to politics? So that's what I'm going to talk about now. And the reason I gave that human story is partly because If you think the principle says you're somewhere in the nondescript middle of the story that you're in, it really depends which story you think you're in. So with the human race, it depends. Do you think we're in the just straightforward time story or are we in the population story? With democracy, let's assume that this principle holds. So we are unlikely to be the generation that sees the end of democracy because that would make us special and we're not. It's possible, everything is possible, but it's unlikely. Let's assume, even though it feels like the end of times, Brexit feels like the end of times, it's not. It's the middle of times. Which story are we in the middle of? So I think there's a long story, a medium story, and a short story. And a huge amount depends on which story we think we're in. The long story is about two and a half thousand years. So that's the story that goes back to ancient Athens and maybe even before ancient Athens, but it's at least two and a half thousand years old. That's an idea of democracy based on some basic principles that have some continuity over time. And if I had to characterize what they were, I'd say the two basic principles of the long story of democracy are the idea that human beings in political terms are basically equal to each other. That is, no one is born either entitled or endowed with qualities that mean that they can necessarily rule other human beings. We're all at some level capable of rule. And behind that principle is the idea that we'll take it in turns. That sometimes we'll be in charge, sometimes we won't, because we're all capable of it. And then the other basic idea in ancient democracy is that politically, collectively, we can control our own fate. It's not dependent on God or some group of people who are outside of our control. At some level, what happens to us is down to us. That's a democratic idea. And that idea is at least two and a half thousand years old as a political idea, an organizing idea of politics. It's had its ups and downs over that period, but there is continuity over a long period of time. So then there's the middle length story, which is about 250 years old. So this is the story of representative democracy, 
which is the idea that the way democracy works is through these things called elections, where we choose people to take decisions for us. We can replace them if we don't like them. So we select from a group, but a relatively narrow group of people. And I'd say the two principles underlying that version of democracy are an idea that it really exists to kind of protect us against misrule or bad politics. It's broadly speaking a risk-averse version of politics, so it's based on things like separation of powers and various constitutional safeguards that give us the ability to resist when things go wrong. And it's also based on very basically a kind of division of labour, the idea that under this system of democracy, there's a small group of people, let's call them politicians, who do politics full-time, and we choose from among them which ones we want, and we can circulate between them quite rapidly. But most of us will not do politics in that way because we're too busy, we've got better things to do, we're not interested, maybe we're not up to it. We're up to choosing the politicians, but we're not up to doing the politics. So there's a kind of basic division, a small group of people who are the politicians and the rest of us who are doing the choosing. And then there's the short story of democracy, which is maybe at most 100 years old. And that's the thing that we now think is democracy. So this is the thing that was a creation of the First World War. This is the long version of this story. In most places, it's much more recent than that. So that's democracy where everybody gets a vote, women as well as men, that radical idea, which is much more recent than people think. In most of Western Europe, you've got to get after the Second World War before you get universal franchises, where you have professional political parties using mass communication to offer competing programs to the electorate. And then you have a state, an administrative state, which is capable at least potentially of delivering on those programs. So you have to have quite a powerful state that has quite a lot of tools at its disposal, including welfare systems and taxation systems and complex bureaucracies that can back up these programs. The thing that we think of as democracy, you choose this party or that party because you want them to do this or that, and we all get a choice, and then if they don't do it, maybe we kick them out. Mass franchise, mass communication, administrative democracy is at most 100 years old. I would say in most places it's 70 years old, so in sort of somewhere like France or Germany. In southern Europe, in Greece, in Spain, in Portugal, it's 40 years old. In Eastern Europe, it's 30 years old. does not exist before the fall of the Berlin Wall. You've got a long story, two and a half thousand years, a middle story, 250 years, a short story, 50 years, if you're lucky, 100 years. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. What does the Copernican principle tell us about the fate of democracy? First, it's really really unlikely that those stories will end at the same time. 
That would be strange. Yet that's the mistake we often make. We think if the short story ends, the long story has ended. And I don't think that's true. Because the short story is just one of many possible versions of the long story. Second, there almost certainly are people alive now who are going to see the short story end. Not definitely, because it might still have 200, 300, 400 years of life left in it. But the fact it looks in trouble at the moment may be a sign that it is in trouble. That wouldn't be an outlandish thing. That's not like thinking this is the end of times, the end of the universe, we're special. 30, 40, 50 years is less than a human lifespan. This version of democracy is the Berlin Wall. It is not Stonehenge. It could easily come down. I think it's also true that the middle story could conceivably come down without it being some outrageously unlikely event. So something that's 200, 250 years old, it's not going to end next week. It's not going to end next month. It's not going to end next year. It's probably not going to end next decade. But were it to be winding down over the next two or three decades, that would mean that we encountered it towards the end of its life, but not at the end of its life. And actually, when you think of what's really under pressure in contemporary democracy, in Britain, in the United States, in Europe, around the world, in some ways, it's the second story. It's the middle length story, just as much as it is the mass franchise, mass communication, modern version of democracy. Because those two principles that democracy exists to provide us with safeguards and protections against certain kinds of misrule. People are increasingly frustrated by the safeguards and the protections. So more and more survey evidence suggests that what people don't like about democracy is the way it seems so clogged up with people able to counter what other people are doing, stopping them getting their way. When you hear news that people are more and more tempted by the idea of an authoritarian or strong leader, it's to cut through the safeguards because they're frustrated by the thing that this version of democracy was set up to achieve, which was to frustrate people who might well make our lives a lot worse. Now, when the people are frustrated, that becomes increasingly hard to sustain. And then, and I talked about this when I was talking about democracy for young people, the division of labour is also, for many people, increasingly implausible. The idea that there is this group called politicians and they decide, and all we can do is decide between them. Because, for many people, the politicians are no different from us. We're educated, they're educated. We're middle-aged, they're middle-aged. And then for another significant section of the population, the politicians look like they exclude them completely. So there are these two groups in the populations of Western societies, each of whom has reason for thinking that the division of labour doesn't make sense, either because they are no different from the politicians or because the politicians never represent them. And that principle is coming under real pressure too. So it's possible that... The middle story of democracy is one that we will live to see the end of. So I found myself thinking, if Richard Gott wanted a kind of middle monument, somewhere between the Berlin Wall and Stonehenge on his trip in 1969, what's the kind of structure that's 200-ish years old that might look really permanent but isn't? And there is one. It's 
the Palace of Westminster, so the Houses of Parliament. So say in 1969, maybe he did. I guess I could ask him. I don't know him. <laughs> say in 1969, he went to look at the Houses of Parliament. So that's like a pretty permanent kind of building. Really hard to imagine outliving that. That building was put up after the original Palace of Westminster burned down at the dawn of the Victorian age. So that's a building that was built in the middle of the 19th century. So it's it's well into its second century now. And it's falling down. So we know this. It leaks. It's full of asbestos. The electricity doesn't work. It could easily burn down again. Apparently, the people who work there are having a nervous breakdown, but it's partly because the building's having a kind of physical breakdown. There is constant talk about moving Parliament out, restoring it. It's not hard to imagine moving Parliament out and never moving back, at which point what happens to that building? Well, I presume it doesn't get demolished because it's quite pretty, so maybe it becomes a hotel or something. So these things which would have seemed kind of inconceivable in 1969, but it's not impossible that the Palace of Westminster is something whose shelf life currently is within the bounds of an existing human's life. It's not Stonehenge. So ancient democracy is Stonehenge. That story is not coming to an end anytime soon. The other thing to say about the short story and the medium story is that it really depends where you are, how these relate to each other. Because so two countries that sometimes get compared at the moment are the United States and Hungary, because they have authoritarian strongman elected leaders elected under that short story version of democracy, um, but doing their best to dismantle even the medium story of democracy, the safeguards story of democracy. But the difference is, in the United States, that's probably the extreme example where the medium-length story is much, much longer than the short story. So the United States has been that kind of separation of powers, safeguard, division of labor democracy, more or less since its founding. But it's only been what I would think of as a mass franchise, mass communication, administrative state democracy since the Second World War and perhaps even only since the Civil Rights Movement. So there's kind of a 200-year mismatch between the medium story and the short story. Whereas in a country like Hungary, those two stories are the same. Until the fall of the Soviet Union, until the fall of the Berlin Wall, Hungary was not a US-style representative democracy without a mass franchise. It became a mass franchise, mass communication, administrative democracy at the same time that it became a rule of law, separation of powers, safeguards democracy. So both are really young. So both could easily end in the next 10 years. Whereas it seems to me really unlikely in the American case, not impossible, but unlikely that the two stories would end at the same time. So I want to just say two or three more things about this and then say what I think really matters in this. So the other thing to say, obviously, is that politics is not the only thing going on in the world and political timeframes are not the only timeframes that matter. So even though there are these three versions of democracy and it really matters, I think, which one you, you believe you're in the middle of or which you think is the important one that you're in the middle of, there are other things happening too operating on very different timeframes. So for instance, even the short democracy story, so let's call it the 50 to 100 year story, is long in the age of the digital revolution. So the digital revolution is operating on much, much faster timeframes than that. So something else that the Copernican principle applies to is the life and death of corporations. It's actually quite a useful principle for thinking about if you come across a corporate entity on a random day 
and you want to know how long will this thing be around for, you've got very little to base that on. Your best guess is to look and see how long it has been around for, because corporations are much more like Broadway shows than they are like natural human beings. Corporations that have been around for decades could fail tomorrow. Any corporation could fail tomorrow. But that would be really unlikely on the day you encounter it, that the next day it falls over. That would make you special. They're more likely to be around for a while. If you meet a corporation on the day of its launch, its IPO, it could be around for decades, but it wouldn't be that surprising if it wasn't around in six months. So Facebook is 15 years old from its sort of homo sapiens birth, but it's only, I think, just under seven years old since it was launched as a public company. Now, it could easily be around for another 100 years, but it wouldn't be at all surprising if Facebook was not here in 15 years' time. I mean, actually, that would be weird because that would mean we were bang in the middle of the story, so 10 years or 20 years. But that's less than even that 50, 100-year span. But there, I think it would be a mistake to think, well, that's fine. It's likely that even the short version of democracy will outlast Facebook because it might well outlast Facebook. But it's not like when Facebook goes, we'll revert back to the world before Facebook. What's happening in the age of the digital revolution is this likely increasingly fast turnover of immensely powerful, immensely influential, uber-networked corporations, of which Uber would be one. And they may come and go, but when they go, it's because they've been replaced by another one. It's not like they go and then democracy reasserts itself in the absence of these kind of corporations. So that time frame is not a reassuring one, I think, where you can think, well, if we can cling on to the democracy that we know and are familiar with, it can outlast the digital revolution. No, it will be outpaced by the digital revolution. The digital revolution is just moving faster. So even the, for want of a better word, fast version of democracy is too slow for that. I'll say at the end, it doesn't actually necessarily mean the long version of democracy is too slow. Other time frames that overlap with the political ones, I'll just do two. So one slightly chilling thought is that the thing that now tends to be called the Anthropocene, which is the age of natural existence in the life of the planet, where the natural order of the world has come to be shaped predominantly by human interventions. So the Anthropocene is the age of man-made nature. That period, not exactly, but broadly coincides with the middle-length story of democracy. Humans exploiting and also benefiting from their, their control over nature, it coincides with the story of modern capitalism, it coincides with the story of the post-industrial revolution world that happens to coincide with the mid-length story of democracy. I'm not saying democracy is to blame. I don't think democracy did this. I don't think democracy chewed up and spat out the planet, but it didn't stop it either. And I think one of the reasons maybe it didn't stop it is that the safeguards in representative democracy exist to protect current generations from the politicians or the political systems that might exploit them there is very little evidence in that 250-year story that those safeguards protect either future generations or the natural world. That's not what they're designed to do. 
And if future generations in the natural world need protecting increasingly, it's at least possible that even the mid-length story of democracy is coming to the end of its useful life. And then I think an even more chilling thought is that the thing that we call global warming, and David Wallace-Wells made this point on this podcast a few weeks ago, most of it has happened in the last 50 years. So most of it has happened on the watch of the short story of democracy. And actually, frankly, most of it has been done by the world's democracies, less so now because of the rise of China. But that's a very recent event, the rise of China. Again, I don't think democracy did it. I don't think people voted for parties that in their mass communication administrative program said, vote for us and we'll make everything a lot hotter. But they didn't stop it. There's nothing in that 50 to 100 year story where there is evidence that this way of doing politics stops the thing that we now think of as climate change or a warming world. And again, if that's true, it, nothing necessarily follows from this. It could still stop it. Um, it could adapt. But in my mind, at least, it reinforces the thought that things that we think are the whole story, A, may not be the whole story, and B, may be coming close to the end of their useful life. And yet, there's still Stonehenge. So there is still the long story, which is not going to end anytime soon. So that would be really odd if we or our children or our grandchildren were the generation that saw the idea that human beings are politically basically equal to each other and that they should collectively be capable of determining their own fate. If we saw that idea die or those two ideas die, because those two ideas have been around long enough that probabilistically they still have quite a lot of life left in them. And those ideas also seem to me like the ideas that are more likely to tackle some of the things that the mid-length or the shorter version of democracy seems to be struggling to tackle. But we won't get to those ideas or be able to separate them out unless we give up on the thought that if the thing that we've lived with, the thing that we saw on our trip to this planet, which is this form of democracy, is the whole story because we're the whole story, because it's all about us, unless we can get away from that thought, we will just spend all of our time being preoccupied with our place in the short story and think that we are the short story, the short story is us, and that's it. And forget that there are many, many other ways of doing democracy. There are many, many other ways in which human beings can treat each other as equal. There are many, many other ways in which we could try to collectively take control of our fate that do not have to follow the pattern of the last 50 or even 100 or even possibly 200 years. It's a hard thing to imagine, just like it's really hard to imagine the Berlin Wall coming down. It was genuinely unimaginable when I was a student and then it happened, and it kind of happened overnight, almost literally overnight. And then people adjusted very quickly to the thought that we now lived in a world without the Berlin Wall. But for a while, it felt like the Berlin Wall was kind of holding the world together. Turned out it wasn't. Now, basic democratic ideas, I think, do hold the world together. But the short story is not the long story. And there's a kind of irony here, which is the point of the Copernican principle is that it says... 
It's not about us. Human beings shouldn't think where we are in space or in time is the special place because it's where we are. But the thing about the long story of democracy is it reminds us that it is about us because the idea is that we are responsible for our fate. And indeed, we're responsible for the fate of the people who come after us. So somehow we have to square these two thoughts that it's not all about us. We're unlikely to be living through the end of times. The things that are keeping us awake at night are not necessarily the most important things that have ever happened in the history of the human race. And at the same time, the core idea of democracy is that we do have to take responsibility for the future. And actually, one of the problems potentially with the mid-length story is that division of labour over time kind of eroded that idea that somehow we're in this together. And it's produced the sort of divisions where essentially, as you see in contemporary democratic politics, it's almost impossible for people to believe that we share a fate with the politicians who are deciding our fate for us. There's nothing easy about sort of embracing the long view of democracy. I think it's a huge challenge. And again, nothing about the Copernican principle says the way to keep something going is to go back to the beginning, go back to Athenian democracy exclude the women, have slaves. That would be a really bad idea. But those basic principles, those are the principles that could easily survive us having to detach ourselves from the things that we think are so special because they're what we've lived with. And it's at least possible, if you think about some of the really scary stuff we've been talking about on this podcast to do with both technology and climate, that at some point we are going to have to make that imaginative leap. If you missed our other two specials on the future of democracy, you can search on our website, talkingpoliticspodcast.com, and look for How Democracy Ends and Democracy for Young People. And if you'd like to read David's book, How Democracy Ends, the paperback edition is out tomorrow. David and the rest of the panel will be back after Easter. Thank you for listening. We've been Talking Politics. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.